Welcome back to Restless Summer. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to Restless, a postmortem on the young Restless and Reform movement. Uh, this is Pastor Michael, and I am here always with uh, the best host. And a little shout out to all the people that have told me to my face who know me and are supposed to love me that he sounds really good. This is how they put it. Wow, that other guy sounds really good on the podcast. Thanks everyone, shout out to you. And uh, that guy who sounds good, Matt, it's you. You're the guy who well, sounds good. Well, I, I'm glad to be the guy that sounds good. Is it is it my deep voice or is it my vocal fillers? What What is it they love? Oh, I don't know. I, I've not gotten any specifics about it yet, but uh, I, have, I have just been told to my face, that other guy is good at podcasting. Well, if you'd like to support my dreams of podcasting, please just rate and review the show. And, what, and with what we've got planned today, you might hear more from me today. Yeah, so uh, Matt, this is kind of your idea of a show, and uh, I know you're going to tell us a little bit uh, about something that took place in church history that uh, should matter for us. I don't know why. Who needs church history, Matt? Why do we even need to talk about church history? Well, today is actually going to be, I believe, intensely practical, which is exactly what everyone thinks when I say we're going to talk about some 4th century church history, an intensely practical look at the 4th century. And so I think that there is this dynamic that has been operating in New Calvinism, in those of us who've left New Calvinism, has has existed in, in almost every, even just branch of general evangelicalism. If you're an evangelical Christian today, I would guess you can identify with what I'm talking about. When you became right a new Calvinism and understood Calvinism for the first time, likely it was something you didn't grow up with. I think we had the tendency to look down on every Bible camp, evangelical church, VBS and campus ministry that, you know, kept us in the dark, right? You know, Pastor Michael and I have called uh, Calvinism the, the first red pill in this way. The new Calvinism was the first red pill movement. Then I think, or maybe you're the kind of person and you even are rejoicing at the decline and demise of the Bible Belt. Yeah, it's very common right now to uh, talk this way, um, to talk about the the end of those silly, backwards, uh, unsophisticated kinds of Christianity that have existed uh, around us. But if you are a former New Calvinist or New Calvinist or whatever we're calling ourselves, I'll say when you are a restless podcast listener, that's right. We have our you own are, movement now. This is the are, restless. Are, this is the restless movement. That's right. Take that. We don't TGC. We don't want you on the show anymore. We don't need you. We're we're our own. We're own our own now. movement. Blog blog site coming quickly with cultural criticism. That's right. Restaurant reviews. Gas station food reviews. What what soon happened to me especially, and I'm sure to many of our listeners. You are wondering what to do with the teachers who introduced you to Calvinism 
or other biblical doctrines you now believe to be true. For example, I was introduced to Calvinism and, and many other doctrines I now hold to by Mark Driscoll. Or maybe you're now a confessional Christian and you are wondering what to do with these teachers who are not confessional and you didn't get this fuller view of Reformed theology. Or maybe they turned out to just be a comic book villain or they imploded their church or they left the faith. And, you've, and you're left wondering what you do with what you thought you learned in these movements. Pastor Michael, do you think this is a, a common experience? Is this one you have shared? Without a doubt. Um, so it's, it's easy to get jaded, right? It's really easy to get jaded about uh, those who have fallen apart, those who tell you. And very often, we've already talked about this, it's very easy for people to have attached themselves personally to various uh, members of this movement or any other really, right? And, and say, well, this is the guy, this is the movement, this is the book, whatever it might be. And then when that uh, teaching that you learn from them, that you still love, that you, that you still like, uh, when, when that person uh, goes down, when their church implodes, when uh, it turns out that they've been you know, uh, living some kind of scandalous lifestyle, uh, the question does arise, like, what do I, what do, I do with this? What do I do with this? Does that mean, therefore, that this teaching itself and, and what I learned from them and how I grew, does that mean that that was all fake? And fortunately, when you come at this as a, as we would call ourselves, Catholic Christians, Christians who, who trace themselves back to the church in all the world, in all times, lowercase c, not Roman Catholic, because that is what we call an oxymoron. You can't be Catholic if you're from one place. Sorry, that's just my uh, free Protestant jab at Catholicism today. <laughs> Catholics, we love you. Uh, we would love to have you on the show sometime. <laughs> what a show that would be. <laughs> but today we're talking about something that they would probably know a lot about. We are looking back because there is an event in church history that actually gives us a lot of clarity about how to think about this. Because this isn't the first time the church has faced this kind of question. We are going to look at today the rise and the fall of Donatism. And so let me lay some background about what, where, this, where this all came from in the, in the fourth century. The fourth century of the church was a very stormy period. There were kind of these two crises that faced the church one right after the other. So first, the, there was an emperor whose name was Diocletian. Now, if you know that name, the reason you know it is because when you think of the kind of persecution the Roman Christians faced, it's probably from things from the Diocletian persecution. This was one of the rare empire-wide, intense in all places persecution of the church. He believed that to have unity in Rome, he needed to have a unified pagan religion. And so he came for Christians wherever they could be found, wherever they met. He came for the, to burn the scriptures. He came for their leaders. And, and many Christians lost their lives, many, many, but many denied the faith, and, and, but many others stood bravely in those times. However, very soon after, an emperor who you also certainly know his name, Constantine, arose. And Constantine became emperor, converted to Christianity, and made Christianity a legal religion. And so now, instead of a persecuted minority, 
they were kind of a uh, promoted plurality, right? To get close. So people of all wealth statuses all over the empire were converting to Christianity, probably some for political reasons to be closer to the emperor. And these Christians, instead of meeting in secret, were now meeting in, in buildings being built by the emperor. And a lot of the church became very concerned that the church was no longer the standards of living fell, right? They were worried about this kind of nominalism. Well, are these people really sincere? And so after this fact, a few reactions occurred. And so we have one from the historian, the church historian named Eusebius. Eusebius is often criticized for how positive about Constantine he was. And I'm not a historian, but that's probably fair. But understanding Eusebius saw this horrible persecution, and now there's an emperor who claims the name Christian, who's, who called the Nicene Council, who's, who's protecting and part of the church, right? It's, it's hard to imagine how huge of a relief and shock that would have been to someone like that. So you have the kind of very positive view of what was happening. You have the monastic re response. These people believed that what they needed to do was flee these problems of nominalism. They went out into the deserts for contemplation, fasting, right? And, 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 and the things people would be familiar with, with monasticism. But the rest of the church, and, and Eusebius, no doubt, as well, they were left asking themselves this question. What do you do with people, but especially the church leaders and pastors who denied the faith during these persecutions and wanted back into the church. Now, before we, we talk about the answers, I want our listeners to think about that question. What do you do when you have some people who have maybe lost their lives or at, at personal cost stood for the faith and others, even their leaders, who denied the faith? Yeah, you think about how difficult that would be, especially with you know, you can imagine uh, being someone in a church and the pastor of your church uh, once things really heat up as far as persecution goes, uh, denies the faith. But say you have a father who, you know, stands up for the faith and is killed because of it. And then that pastor comes back and says, well, I want I want to be back part of the church. Right. Put yourself in that kind of situation where this I mean, all of a sudden this takes on a whole very difficult personal element uh, because you saw uh, that you, you know, those who did stand strong, those who did uh, walk through the fire in that sense and walk right into death, willing to do that for the sake of Christ. And then the, those who, you know, especially, you know, you would have thought maybe should have, and they did not. This is very difficult. Now in North Africa, this persecution had been very bad. And People sought to avoid this persecution through different ways. Um, some of them, when the Romans came, the Romans came demanding all of the Christian scriptures. And so some of them gave heretical books or non-scriptural books because the Roman soldiers, they couldn't tell the difference between a, a Gnostic gospel and a legitimate gospel. And so they, you know, they were able to escape that way. Now, some of them gave up actual copies of the scriptures to be destroyed. And they said they were doing so to save their and their congregation's lives. 
these people became known as traditores. This is where we get our term traitor, and that Latin term was also used for Judas, right? So this was considered a very high, high sin at that time. Um, and then the, 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 maybe the final stage was the people would actually, were demanded, actually worshipped at the pagan gods, temples. And it was said at this time that the Diocletian revolution, he had demanded worship at the pagan temples, and the temples were overflowing. There was no room in these places for more people. But there were the Christians who did it. They were imprisoned, they were tortured, they were killed, as Pastor Michael's already described. And the church greatly respected these people, right? As we all should, and as the church always has, respected martyrs and those who have suffered greatly for the faith. But the church had to find a way to amend the people who had maybe denied the faith in some ways, and these people who had stood for the faith. And they were, and they were faced with this, this problem. And so, generally, th this was, of course, not the first persecution they had faced. There was more of what we would call a moderate view and a rigorous view. So the moderate view had developed over time, and the idea was they would, you needed to confess your sins to a confessor, which is a person who had suffered under the persecution, and be forgiven. Now, there had been you know, lots of debates around these. And the rigorous views, these views, you know, some of them didn't want to readmit them at all. Some of them wanted to require a lot of penance over time. But these were the kind of, these were the kinds of different solutions that were being promoted. But in North Africa, in the fourth century, there was a really important election after this time. And there's debate over the political intrigue that was going on. And we're not going to go down the rabbit hole, but there was a, a person of the moderate camp elected. But the rigorous party, the people, probably some who had suffered for the faith and, and those who had at least, you know, viewed that as a very important um, value, were not happy with him. And so they elected another bishop, which led to the bishop named Donatus. Donatus was described as an incredibly gifted man. He was the charismatic, eloquent leader, right? His followers evidently called him Donatus the Great. And Donatus made the claim that he and, and his, he was the rightful bishop. He was the rightful leader of the church in that place because he was from the church of the martyrs and the church of the apostles. And why did he say his election was legitimate and the others wasn't? Was because that bishop had been ordained by a bishop who was a traditor. So this bishop got his office from someone who apparently later denied the faith. And, and Donatus said that, that that was an illegitimate move because God works through a morally upright church. And again... The issue was now the church needed to recognize who the bishop was there, right? This is like if a, if a senior pastor in a church was selected and then another group said, no, this guy's the senior pastor. The church had to figure out who was the pastor. And so this is the crux of the Donatist claim, that the sacred actions of unworthy priests are invalid. 
Again, listener, I want you to ask yourself how you would answer this question. If a priest or pastor is making these actions, but they're unqualified or they're unworthy for their office, should we consider the actions they take valid? And so the Donatist said that the sacraments, the ordinations, and all the rites performed by such priests were invalid. They had to be qualified and worthy for them to be valid. Yeah, this is honestly something that should sound pretty familiar, I think. Um, the idea that uh, the sinfulness of the agent uh, affects you know, all things that they do, right? And the desire, I think this is a typical desire within uh, you know, kind of modern evangelicalism, especially uh, that, you know, the, the purity of the, you know, bishop in this case, the, the purity of the leader of, you know, the church movement or the church or the pastor or whatever it might be, that that is the determining factor of the spiritual efficacy of what they do. So the, the other side, the moderate side, um, what became the Catholic side, they claimed the validity of the sacraments cannot be dependent on the person performing them. Otherwise, Christians, through all their lives, will never have certainty about the validity of their baptism, of the Lord's Supper, or their marriages, because the person could always deny the faith, commit a heinous sin. And they believe that would introduce a lot of chaos into the church. And what if should we you know, make clear again, uh, this wasn't just... Uh, you know, this person did this and now they want to get back in. This is uh, this person, you know, maybe this bishop did these ordinations and it was after having done that, that they went on to, uh, you know, uh, deny the faith under persecution. And so uh, it's, it's even, it's just thinking, you know, backward, right? It, anything that this person ever did is now called into question. And everyone, everything that everyone they ordained did. That's right. Every, so everything is in question now. And so the Donatists even doubled down further in the debate. And they say that everyone who claimed communion with these unworthy bishops, which becomes the rest of the church in the world, were illegitimate because they were now participating in this error and the treason that would invalidate the sacraments. And so... The, the, the true scandal, the public scandal they introduced was they required rebaptism of anyone joining the Donatist church. Pastor Michael, just for those of us who probably have seen many rebaptisms in our lifetime, what, what would be so shocking about that kind of demand? Yeah, well, especially this time and, and with just any, uh, you know, uh strong view of what baptism is. If, if baptism is not simply your, you know, personal profession of faith, your personal confession in some way, um, if it has, uh, you know, more meaning than that, if there is a, a spiritual significance to it, and if it's referring to, if it, if it points to, if it looks toward uh, the, the union that you have with Christ and the, the purifying or cleansing work uh, that Christ has done by his Holy Spirit in your life, uh, if, if that's what it means and, and is connected to, then what you're saying is that um, if you had to be rebaptized, you never were a Christian, right? You, you've never, you never had the true faith uh, until you are actually baptized by one of these, you know, uh, uh, these bishops that is not in this line of those who had, who had denied the faith. Right. That's why we would rebaptize someone from, say, the occult like Mormonism, 
but we wouldn't rebaptize someone from another denomination. We might differ with them on a lot of things, but we we we're not saying they're not part of the true church. That's right. So the Donatists were claiming that they were the only true, they were the pure church on earth. Why? Because they said the church was the bride of Christ and it was to be holy. And so priests without personal holiness had no authority. The other party maintained the idea that the church would have inside of it true and false believers, that we shouldn't be trying to judge these things, and, and that the Lord would be, will be the ultimate judge of these things, and he will work these things out amongst his own people. So North Africa becomes dominated by the teaching of this man. He was a bishop there for 40 years and labored to establish the, his church there. Um, Rome used law. Constantine wanted there to be united Christianity, so they used law to try and persecute these people. Radical followers of Donatists had violent clashes. But at one point where there was a, a gathering for a, a, a debate, there were 270 Donatist bishops. And I think it's hard for us living now to understand the scandal in that time when suddenly there were two churches. There was, there was, you could pick which church you were going to go to, both claiming to be the Holy Apostolic Church. This was kind of the first time this ever happened. However, things got interesting when a bishop was sent to the nearby town of Hippo in 391. Again, the Donatists have been at large for 80 years now. And that's when our homeboy, Augustine, walks onto the scene. Pastor Maybe Michael, some of our listeners have a t-shirt. Augustine is my homeboy. Uh, I, would I, not, I, I bet that's out there somewhere. It's got to be. This is our I, circle. We all know it. We can laugh about it. But you got to tell us if you had that t-shirt, if you had that mug, you got to tell us. This is confession time, right? Yep. This is you now have to confess to us. Did you ever own an Augustine was my homeboy? Uh, and we will get comments. Is it Augustine or Augustine? Uh, Augustine. And yeah. so, you know, so, uh, however who, you want to say it. So who was? Gus, I feel almost horrible saying Gus. It just seems irreverent in a sense. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Augustine, you know, uh, Bishop of Hippo, you know, uh, a Augustine as uh, Augustine as see now I'm putting them together Augustine uh, Augustine uh, was uh, a bishop that you know uh, for uh, works like uh, the confessions uh, for books like the city of God uh, which are still you know uh, highly prized uh, there were uh, Augustine becomes uh, the most influential uh, bishop early church uh, leader uh, in especially the Western tradition. And so you get down to, say, the time of the Reformation, and you have uh, orders of monks uh, called, you know, uh, they, they would call themselves Augustinian. Uh, some of them, like uh, a certain Martin Luther, uh, were, you know, Augustinian monks. And uh, to this day, I mean, I, I think that you could, you could very easily say that, you know, uh, obviously outside of the apostles or, or something like that. Uh, Augustine is, is likely the most influential, uh, you know, church leader probably that has ever lived. That's, that would be one of my assumptions. Anyway, he's at least, at least in the top three. Um, and, and definitely, you know, uh, has a running for being number one. 
So, but when Augustine is called a bishop and moves to Hippo, all of this is ahead of him. He is a, a new bishop, and this story could be apocryphal, but in my research, I found that the Donatist church in Hippo was actually larger than the church he was called the pastor. And apparently, the Donatist pastor was very gifted. And Augustine recounts hearing the Donatist choir sing louder than even his church. And so Augustine decides, he sets out that he is going to reconcile the two churches. He is going to correct this error. And he is going to do so by answering the question, what is the nature of the church? On what basis do bishops works on on what basis are the works of bishops legitimate how does god work through people and so he began to he has a many anti-donatist writings in his efforts to reconcile this and in his work to get this issue finally settled he was able to get an arbitration held at Carthage, where this all started in 411. And there, he preached two sermons um, that really turned the tide on this. And so the Donatists there claimed the church is the society of the holy. And Augustine agreed that the church was the holy church. However, he said the church is holy not because of what the individual members are like, but because of its union with Christ. And therefore, the other, the other major thing the Donatists there claimed was that apostates and non-Christians did not give legitimate sacraments, as we mentioned. And they said, he who receives faith from a faithless priest receives not faith, but guilt. That was a major Donatist rallying cry. Augustine responded and he said, my origin is Christ. My root is Christ. My head is Christ. The seed of which I was born is the word of God, which I must obey. Though the preacher himself practices not what he preaches, I believe not in the minister by whom I am baptized, but in Christ, who alone justifies the sinner and forgives my guilt. Right. Amen. Amen. I'm just throwing in my hat already in the ring. Obviously, I'm, you know, on his side. Yeah. What is what is he getting at with that quote, Pastor Michael? This is this is so important uh, because this uh, like we'll talk about more. This is not uncommon through the history of the church that somebody picks out. Usually they try to pick one particular issue. Right. So in this case, you have there's obvious reasons why this would come up as a problem. There's obvious reasons why you would be skeptical of those who did uh, end up denying Christ in persecution. Like that makes total sense. Uh, that that this would particular issue would come up at this time. But there are other issues that'll come up throughout the history of the church in other ways, right? Particular sins that if these particular sins have been partaken of, that makes everything else illegitimate. Sometimes it will be sexual sin. Sometimes this, I'm just thinking of things that are common today, uh, sexual sin, sometimes today, especially with the issues of like racism, right? So if if anything had its roots with somebody who practiced some kind of, uh, of white supremacy or racial sin right now, well, obviously everything that person built, everything that's come from them is illegitimate and wrong, right? That this is this is a common trend throughout the history of the church. But what 
Augustine gets at is the, the core reality that basically, yeah, you're right. People are sinful. You know, wow, you figured that one out. Way to go. Uh, people are sinful, but guess what? Uh, it's not about like the people. It's not about your personal holiness. It's not about your personal purity because that will always fail. It's about Christ. And I love that statement, right? Christ is all, right? Uh, it, it's all Christ. My origin is Christ. My root is Christ. My head is Christ. It's all Christ, right? That's This is what uh, allows us to see even the work of those who have sinned or apostatized or anything like that, which there were many in the new Calvinist movement, right? We've seen this. Uh, this is what allows us to be able to say, you know, no, God still works good through it. Why? Because it's his word that matters. It's his spirit that matters. It's, it's his uh, ordinances that matter. Uh, it's not, it's not us, right? Uh, anyway. I would guess that was a lot, probably a lot like what Augustine's sermons sounded like at the arbitration of Carthage, where he confronted this error. And, and the other thing is, honestly, I think we can understand the attraction of the Donatist position, trying to, to reconcile this apostasy. But Augustine had a lot of scripture on his side. Just think about it off the top of your head. The denial of Peter, reinstated. Yeah, even right. what I was thinking when, you know, you're reading some of the, the thoughts of the Donatists, I'm thinking, man, you know, uh, well, I guess you don't want to be a, you know, child of Abraham, because uh, that would not go too well for you. And I thought of Peter, I thought of, of Peter both denying Christ and when he, you know, uh, later on when later, he in sin. Yeah. With Paul. Yeah, where Paul has to confront him. Again. Yeah. And so the, the Donatist position had a lot of problems. And, and now I will say, there were there are a lot of other implications this had, along with state religion, um, state enforcement of orthodoxy, the sacraments long term, that all come back in the Reformation. But again, I want to focus on the the above question. And so the important points that I think that Augustine brings out of this is that the church in our age is not perfected. The church is a pilgrim. It's on its way. And he said, but even the problem with the Donna's disposition is even they have sinners inside of it. They are not faultless. And so the only hope we have is to claim that the church is holy, not because of the members, but because of Christ. And because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, there is one true church. And outside of it, there cannot be a means of salvation. And this is there. why, by the way, all of these movements come to an end. Down, this is why we're talking about Augustine and we're talking about this guy and how he's our homeboy, right? Because every one of these movements falls apart. Why? Because they're just as sinful. They just happen to often pick, well, there's this one particular sin or some kind of hierarchy of sin. But over time, what becomes very clear is that they're in the same position. Right. And people do, you know, eventually uh, either realize that or they just blow up themselves. And so uh, it just it just happens. Right. They their own ministries blow up and uh, it becomes clear to everyone at that point. Uh, but it, it just does not work. And let me just say right now, hey, if this is this is, again, a common uh, sin in our ranks. If you are a, a perfectionist, if you uh, believe in some kind of need for this kind of of level of purity of the church, or it is not the church. You have to stop thinking that way, right? And honestly, you just need to read your Bible a lot more. Christ is pure, right? And he will have a pure bride. 
not in this age. Right, exactly. There's there's going to come a day when when the bride is is adorned in all purity and will be presented to Christ. We're told about this in Revelation. Uh, but right now is a time when we're told in uh, Ephesians 5, Christ washes his bride with his word, right? He is he is washing her right now. Uh, he is using his word to sanctify her, uh, but it is it is not completed. And so any kind of perfectionistic look at at the church is just going to fall short. And, and you won't be able to stay anywhere. This is often cited as a reason people leave the faith. Well, look, I saw all this sin, you know, amongst the pastor, amongst the leadership or, or these other people. I saw all these hypocrites in the church. Well, that's kind of why I'm here. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's why I need this because I'm that hypocrite because I'm that sinner. Uh, this is why I need Christ to be all and in all. And so the final point, and that I think is, is again, relevant to our above question about what to do about uh, new Calvinists that fell away and deficient uh, Christianity in our background is the sacraments worked by the virtue of the power of God, not the power of man. Therefore, the failures of man did not degrade their power, right? Philip Schaff, the eminent church theologian, said this was a conflict between separatism and Catholicism, as in the universal church. This is what the, and he said this had implications for Protestantism today. Pastor Michael has already started to get to these, um, but I have a few of these that I, I want to draw out because, again, I think I'm glad Pastor Michael was here to help bring us along because when we hear about these issues of sacraments, right, these are somewhat foreign concepts, but there is practical, very practical ways this comes about it. So, one thing we might say it is, what you learned, even if you learn something true from an evil man, it doesn't make it untrue, right? And even being taught something from a morally upright person uh, doesn't, doesn't necessarily make it true. You have grown through preaching that you might now think was deficient. You grew from Mark Driscoll sermons. You grew from VBS. You grew from, I don't know, maybe you've grown from the Restless Podcast. You've grown from Pastor Michael's preaching. These are all, these are, God is using evil men. And this is my other, this is my other thing is, God has elected a universe where he only has morally deficient people to work through. Let me say that again. God has elected to create a universe where he only has morally deficient people to work through outside of Christ, right? Calvin makes this point. He says God could have chosen to always declare the gospel through angels, but he didn't. Yeah. He chose to use sinners. He chose to give us pastors who were sinners, churchmen, church fathers who were sinners, new Calvinists who were sinners. And, and the final one is cutting yourself off from the deficient church, problematic churches, is you're the schismatic. Cutting yourself off from the society of safe people. The person introducing the schism is cutting themselves off from the society of the saved, even when they're the nominal ones, even when they're the, right, Donatist's position was, I am the party of the martyrs, right? That we will not go down. Yeah, this is the danger of the red pill. This is the danger of cage stage Calvinism is that uh, it's 
you might feel like, well, the rest of the church is alienating me, but probably uh, what is often happening is you alienate yourself from uh, the rest of the church, the church Catholic. Uh, you cut yourself off uh, from the rest because you have this idea of, of doctrinal purity or, you know, and this is probably in our circles, what it comes out as more. It's not life purity, right? It's not, I have to, you know, live exactly right because we say, well, no, we're not saved by work, right? It, it's all grace. It's not works. Um, but what it often comes down to is doctrinal purity, intellectual purity. You don't teach exactly the right thing. You don't say it how I think you should say it. And therefore you're not a part of the true church. That's the danger here. That's what we don't want you to fall into. Uh, it's what, you know, it's, it's what has been so easy for uh, any of us to fall into as we, you know, have discovered these new ideas, these new truths. Because what we share in common with Augustine is we believe God works through the means of grace regardless of the person who he might have used, right? And when we say means of grace, obviously Augustine was, would have been primarily speaking of baptism. We're talking about preaching, teaching, sermons. God can be at work. Now, that doesn't mean don't check. Don't go back if you find out a teacher has lots of problems. That doesn't mean follow them in all their errors. Doesn't mean go back, doesn't go back and check, right? We've already talked about the need for discernment. But that knowing that the doctrines of grace, the gospel, the authority of the scriptures, the glory of Christ, even if you heard these from people who now have really bad cultural takes, those things are still important, true, glorious, and God used in your life. And, and this is why the Restless Podcast in one of our first episodes said, we actually want to be, we want to be your grandma's Christianity. That's, that's one thing we endeavor to do. Yeah, right? We want to and cut not, ourselves off. That's right. I'm not saying you should have your grandma's view of election or baptism or dispensationalism. I don't know what your grandma believed about those things. But what I'm saying is that if your grandma was a, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then she is part and had the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And you putting your distance between that is dangerous and is not, is not what we learned from Augustine, who tells us to don't worry and don't be a Donatist. Hey, sorry if my sound was a little off in my recording. Don't know what happened, but it's restless summer. Let it go. Don't worry. Don't be a Donatist. Rate and review the show. We'll be back with more restless summer interviews next week. <laughs>